It's Friday, July 30th, 2021, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavroides, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution and Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. A new poll published by UC Berkeley and the Los Angeles Times found that within the margin of error, 50% of likely voters support keeping California Governor Gavin Newsom in office, while 47% support removing him. Uh, Bill, to start off with you, um, is Gavin Newsom in trouble? Uh, yes, he's in trouble, Jonathan. Um simply because the assumption was by placing the recall election uh, on September 14th, about a month earlier than we thought, that um, this was a sign that the Democrats were confident about holding this thing sooner rather than later, and he would breeze through this. And so when you see these poll numbers, as you mentioned, 50% of voters uh, opposing the recall, but 47% supporting it. Keep in mind this. This is a state, first of all, gentlemen, uh, in which Democrats have a 22% advantage in voter registration. Uh, So that tells you that Newsom uh, not only has Republicans in unison against him, but he's in trouble with independents right now because that's how you have a three-point race. Second concern here is that this is a special election in September. It's not a November election, even though uh, I believe that under um, our COVID rules, our COVID laws, uh, Californians will all get ballots. You're having to ask people to vote in September, which they ordinarily won't do. On top of that, gentlemen, um, been a long time since um, a, a Republican has won a statewide race in California, 2006, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Steve Poisner. Um, so a lot of Democrats might be thinking my vote doesn't matter because we win these things anyway. This would worry the governor. And the final point here, and I apologize to our listeners if they've heard me say this before, but I'm going to keep beating this home until the election. It's an unordinary election, and it's not Governor Newsom against a Republican or a series of Republicans running against him. It's really Governor Newsom against himself, because it is a two-part question. Question one, do you choose to recall the governor? Then question two, do you choose to, in the following, to be the governor? So it's Newsom running against himself. It's a referendum on Governor Newsom. It's kind of the Sally Field uh, question. Remember, Sally Field wants an Academy Award, and she famously kind of obnoxiously says, you like me, you really like me. And so what we're finding out here is how much Californians like Gavin Newsom. And if I were the governor and I saw that poll that said that 47% of people are ready to pull the trigger against me, I'd wonder if they really like me. Lee, do you agree the, the governor's in trouble? Yeah, he's he's in so much trouble, Jonathan, that there's a sense in which he's already lost. You've got almost half the state doesn't want to keep him. And Bill raised some really interesting points about who's going to who's going to who's going to vote and who's not going to vote. There might be a lot of disaffected voters um, and there might be Democrats who just don't vote. And those who are really fired up about the issue are going to be the ones that vote. And those who are really fired up about the issue are those who are adamantly against Newsom. The reason I say he's already lost is that with these polls and with the state's economic performance and their inability 
to get kids back to school last year and the potential not to get kids back to school this fall with the COVID Delta variant becoming much more of an issue and nearly half of the state remains unvaccinated. <clears throat> I don't think there could have been any worse news for Newsom than, than what these polls show. And uh, he was interviewed by Politico and what he, I'll just paraphrase him, and what you're going to see is a guy that I don't think really believes in himself. And the paraphrase is, this is a partisan recall effort. Well, no, nearly half the state wants you gone. If we do the good work we were intended to do, then I think everything will be okay on election day. Now, if the good work had been done, the recall wouldn't be occurring. And I think we'll be okay on election day doesn't really sound like a guy who's filled with self-confidence and who yeah. really thinks he can do the job. So I think Californians at some level really already have spoken. And even if he, even if he pulls this out at the 11th hour, he's got to face another election one year, roughly one year from, from this, from this recall. So I yeah. think it's, uh, it's looking awful for the governor right now. Yeah, it's a, one way to look at this is a, is a series of pendulum swings, if you will. The pendulum swung fiercely against Newsom in the second half of 2020, where the economy is locked down. Um, COVID is uh, just wreaking havoc to the economy. We think California is getting angry and grumpy. The school situation's a mess, and he compounds matters by doing the infamous dinner to the French laundry. And if this recall had been held in December of last year, he might have been tossed. Uh, then the pendulum switch swings the other way in the first half of 2021. People get vaccinated. The economy comes roaring back. Sacramento has more money to spend than it knows what to do with. Uh, the state reopens on June 15th. And so the recall is scheduled for September 14th because everything is all hunky-dory. Now I think, Lee and uh, Jonathan, I think the pendulum is swinging the other direction again. Uh, the Delta variant is uh, spiking cases in California. There is an incredible amount of uncertainty over masking policy, which really does cry for leadership, both of the governor and the legislature, because I think if one thing we learned the last time around was asking the 58 counties to all come up with uh, masking and COVID policy is really just building a tower of Babel uh, for this state. Um, on top of that, compounding everything else is wildfire season. Uh, school reopening is going to be kind of messy. And so, you know, now suddenly things are kind of skidding against him. So what does he do? Well, you know, Lee referred to it. It's partisanship. You call this a Republican recall. He has a point. Um, the most prominent opponents against him are all Republicans or no Democrats on the ballot. And I think the Newsom strategy straightforward is going to be this. He has money to spend and we'll get to uh, who's giving him money here in a second, I think. Uh, but I think he's going to just uh, blanket the state about two weeks out of running. And uh, you know who's going to run against? He's going to run against Donald Trump. And I think that's going to be his, his strategy for survival. He's going to make this a referendum, not on Gavin Newsom, but try to make it a referendum on Donald Trump, make these Republicans proxies of Trump and just try to push that button to California. But uh, it kind of reminds me of all things of the 2002 governor's race where Gray Davis ran for re-election, really didn't talk about his own record, just uh, bashed Republicans, backed into victory by about four points and was promptly recalled the following year. So yeah, it's funny how things change in California. A couple months ago, I would have thought Newsom was pretty much a given for surviving this thing. Now I'm not so sure. Looking at the restrictions, um, you know, looking at the COVID restrictions in Los Angeles where, um, you know, Gavin Newsom drew a lot of his, most of his support in 2018 mm -hmm. and, um, uh, you know, less restrictions in more conservative counties. Do you think that that disparity is going to have any impact on voter turnout, uh, this, this recall? 
I think, you know, when you look at when you look at the governor, um, what he has done is given a lot of different people, a lot of different reasons to be disappointed with his performance. So parents, um, households with parents with school-aged children are upset with him because he couldn't get schools reopened. The Dixie Fire has burned 250,000 acres and it's only 25% contained. And we had an awful drought this past winter. And it's just, um, we're just getting into August. So there'll be more wildfires. God willing, they won't be severe, but there's certainly, if, if past history is, is representative, we'll have some severe wildfires in August and September. And this goes back to Newsom's pronouncement that he overstated the number of acres of, wild, of, uh, of, of land with, with uh, fuel. He overstated the number of acres that were treated by a factor of nine. People with kids, and those kids are great students who want to get into the University of California system. Um, 44,000 California kids were denied admission last year. Almost all of them were academically eligible to enter the UC based on Pat Brown's old master plan of higher education back in the day. We have a drought going on where Newsom stood at the bottom of a lake for a press conference And I don't think he understood that the press conference that was supposed to be favorable for him really highlighted the fact that he and other governors before him have failed to provide reliable water. Um, We have a crime problem in California where the crime rate, uh, the homicide rate increased 30 percent statewide, 40 percent in San Francisco, where where District Attorney uh, Chisa Boudin is known to be incredibly lenient, um, and homicides increased 35% in Los Angeles, um, where the DA is also known to be incredibly lenient. Um, Bill, we're, uh, I, I can't recall what the status of the of the recall efforts against those two DAs are. You you probably following that closer than I do. Yeah, they're still going along, and uh, I would just keep an eye on the one of San Francisco, Chase Boudin, who uh, who uh, seems under uh, uh, increasing trouble each day. And uh, not to give away Lee's next column on uh, California, mind who's going to write about that. But um, about masking, um, I just uh, spent a month in South Carolina, uh, which means I did not wear a mask for a month because that state is decidedly anti-mask, and people there, um, they're just well, it's in their DNA, I guess, just to be kind of rebellious. But they will not wear a mask as well. So I must say that flying back to California was just kind of with a cloud over my head, thinking, "Gosh, I now have to wear a mask." But uh, here again, the governor has gotten into a problem. It's a little similar to what happened with the French Laundry. If you remember, uh, listeners who are not familiar with that, last uh, year uh, the governor was telling Californians, you know. Don't go out to restaurants, stay indoors, be safe, be careful. Then it turns out that he went to a dinner for a friend who's a very prominent uh, lobbyist in Sacramento. They went to the French Laundry, which is just this off-the-hook uh, expensive restaurant in Napa Valley. Uh, Newsom was caught going there, which was kind of hypocritical. He made matters worse by saying we obeyed all COVID uh, guidelines. And sure enough, a photo popped up of him sitting at a table, not not masked. And aha, just a terrible moment. It really did was a... you know. Probably might have been a retrospect, the reason why this recall is going now. I think it just kind of pushed the recall uh, over the top. Um, I mentioned this because a story just came out the, the other day involving Governor Newsom's uh, two of his children. Uh, turns out two of his kids were going to a summer camp here in California, um, and the story involves masks. California's current guidance for children age 2 through 12 uh, states that they have to wear a mask during what are, uh, at what are called, quote, camps for youth, youth sports and other youth activities. 
uh, including such things as theater, music, performances, and band. Um, it turns out that this camp was not enforcing the mask mandate. The photo popped up of the governor's son not wearing a mask. And this just became a really ugly aha moment. You know, you want people to wear a mask. Your son's not wearing a mask. The nuisance pulled their kid out of the camp. But Lee and Jonathan gets this issue of, uh, you know, not just Newsom, also Nancy Pelosi and other politicians of, you know, the old question of, you know, do as I say, not as I do. I don't know if that matter of his kid uh, has the same potency as French Laundry, but I do think it underscores just the confusion over masking uh, when you need a mask where you don't. And a lot of people already vaccinated kind of questioning, hey, wait a second, why did I get vaccinated? I still have to wear a mask. So, and you might've noticed by the way, that Newsom has done his best to stay out of the whole masking topic. He's very visible when it comes to signing bills and spending money. Uh, but when it comes to questions about masks, he tends to defer to state and to uh, county uh, health officials. And I, again, I think this is a situation that calls for his leadership and the legislatures. We need to have some consistency around the state. Otherwise, just the confusion is going to turn to anger. It's going to be defiance. I think the sheriff of Los Angeles County, Lee, has said he really doesn't want to run around chasing people around telling them to wear a mask. He has bigger fish to fry. Uh, and this is going to fall on the governor's lap. Bill, as you were, as you're describing um, the situation with Newsom's son, um, I just pulled up the San Francisco's the San Francisco Chronicle's headline about the story, and that headline reads: Newsom pulls his kid from summer camp for not enforcing mask rules. And that, and um, you know, if people want to get a sense of where the media is in reporting um, in reporting politics within the state. Um, Newsom pulls his kid from summer camp for not enforcing mask rules. Doesn't really sound like it was Newsom's kid that was violating the rules. Um, and I think I think the story goes on to say that the camp indicated to parents that they wouldn't be enforcing mask rules um, in an email, and um, and somehow the Newsom household missed that. Um, and so I think people are going to rightly think that if they can't if they can't really manage the well being of their own kids, um, how is he going to manage? the well-being of a state of 40 million people. Bill, you had mentioned earlier a, um, a story that appeared in uh, Cal Matters uh, regarding uh, Gavin Newsom's financial support and political donors. Um, they reported uh, uh, you know, organizations and special interests, including realtors, developers, build, uh, building trades unions, corporate landlords, especially those who have different differing views on the housing crisis, um, as well as defense contractors, abortion rights advocates, new car, new car dealers, and uh, the financier turned liberal mega donor, George Soros. What right. stake do they all have in, in keeping in the governor uh, keeping his his job? So the uh, colony referencing it's in a publication called Cal Matters. The headline is Recall Money Wars. What do Newsom's million dollar donors want? And therein lies the question, Jonathan Lee. What do the donors want? Uh, the story chronicles. So there's a Newsom uh, committee. This is what you do in California. You run as a, a candidate, but you have a committee that uh, runs your campaign. That's who you give money to. The Newsom Recall Committee has raised uh, about $39 million. I think a separate committee's chipped in another $4 million. So he's got $40 million to play with, which keeps you on TV for while in California. Um, but what CalMatters did very smartly, and I wish more uh, journalistic outfits in California did the same, they actually broke down who's giving him the money. And about 45% of that money comes from unions. It comes from labor. Well, not, not a mystery as to what they're going to want. For example, public employees unions have given this governor a lot of money. Prison guards have given him a lot of money. And of course, the California Teachers Association has given him a lot of money. I think they gave him about a million eight last week. They're going to want, what, salaries. The prison guards, for example, notorious for demanding higher salaries. So this governor is going to be on the hook 
for a lot of favors come January of next year, if indeed he does survive the recall and assuming the economy is going well and he has money to spend. But, you know, it's interesting here is it's not just, um, you know, the left, which is giving him money, for example, uh, Reed Hastings, the, uh, the CEO of uh, Netflix. He gave Newsom's campaign committee $3 million. Uh, my very cynical look at this is that Mr. Hastings is doing this to have a seat at the table, knowing that the unions are going to give him money. And uh, Hastings is a big charter school advocate. Uh, he did not back Newsom originally in 2018. He went with Antonio Villaraigosa, the former mayor of Los Angeles, who is much more friendly toward charter schools. Uh, Newsom is not. But I think what Hastings was just thinking was that, look, you know, these, you know, these unions are going to give exacting a, a quid pro quo here if he survives the recall. So I better get involved too and remind him, hey, buddy, I gave you $3 million. We need it. But, you know, Leeds is supposed to be interesting come January of next year when a new budget does come into play and the governor has his revenue to play with. All of these people are going to say, look, Governor Newsom, I gave you money and I'm partially responsible for your survival. And they're not going to be so as brazen to say, what are you going to do for me? But, you know, politics being politics, they remind them that they that he owes them something. And so that really is the question here. What will he owe them? Yeah, there's it's the oldest story in politics. Um, you know, the quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Gavin didn't really get much done in his first term so far. Now, granted, COVID came. But if we look at Newsom's first year in office from January 19 through January of 20, um, he really can't point to, to an accomplishment. Um, I'm not even sure if he can really point to a minor accomplishment other than a lot of executive orders that he signed, including things like um, forbidding gasoline, fossil fuel power cars in the year 2035, or setting aside in perpetuity one third of California land in Greenbelt. Um, a lot, uh, a lot of his executive orders that really aren't in the best interests of a lot of the people he represents. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Bill, I wonder what's going to happen if he survives this now, uh, and you've got the usual base of political donors with their hands out in January. Um, if he survives this, is he going to be running unopposed on the Democratic side? Assuming that we know who he is, we're not going to get a lot of movement of the needle on any of the major issues that confront California. Um, suppose, he, suppo- suppose he survives the recall and we're uh, into the summer of 2022. Um, did the Democrats stick with him? I think so, Lee. Uh, if you look at Wisconsin, Wisconsin's kind of an interesting tale here. Scott Walker is elected governor. Scott Walker uh, gets into a huge fight. The legislature, I think, goes over collective bargaining for teachers, Lee. Um, and there's a recall launched against Walker. And Walker survives the recall. And then next, you know, Walker is kind of the hottest thing since sliced bread among Republicans. And he's talked about as the next big thing in Republican politics. Uh, I could see something similar to Newsom. And I know that's kind of a uh, kind of a you know a, a change in this conversation where we've talked about this guy being in trouble, but just imagine the scenario, Lee, where he survives the recall. So he survives his per- perception of being close to political death, and let's say he survives it comfortably. That maybe fifty-five percent of Californians vote against it. 
he will take a victory lap, Lee, and that victory lap will quickly translate into January, where in front of the legislature, with a lot of money, which looks like a pretty good economy again next year, he's going to want to do big things again. So this is what I fear for California, that rather than Newsom taking the recall experience as kind of a, you know, a cautionary tale, that instead he takes it the wrong way, which is that I'm now bulletproof, if you will. I don't see a challenger to him in 2022 right now, and partly because you don't see a challenger to him right now on this ballot. The one thing which is people have done quite effectively is they went around and said, don't you, if you're a Democrat and thinking about this, and it's very tempting to run in this election, Lee, because uh, there are statewide elections coming up next year. And then there's a the question of Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat in 2024. So it'd be very tempting to get into this race is just kind of a dry run for a future statewide race. But Newsom's people have done a very good job of keeping Democrats off the ballot, which allows him to maintain this talking point of Republican recall. So no, I actually see him kind of uh, invigorated by surviving this thing. And then Katie barred the door just wanting to do even more bolder progressive things next year. Uh, gentlemen, let's take a look at the uh, the replacement uh, candidates, especially on, um, you know, the, um, being that they're all on the Republican side. Um, it appears that conservative radio talk show host Larry Elder is leading the field. Um, he was successful in getting a judge to allow him on the ballot um, after the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, said he didn't properly file uh, five, year, five years worth of tax returns. Um, what appeal do you think uh, Larry Elder has and, and do you think he can win? Um, you want to start off with that? Yeah, I'll take that first. Yeah. So I think, yes, he can win the second question of the ballot because um, none of these Republicans are terribly well financed. Uh, when we go back and look at Arnold Schwarzenegger running in the recall in 2003, you know, we look at Arnold's name recognition and his celebrity and star power, but we forget Arnold was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And Arnold was this political unicorn who could write himself eight-figure checks if he wanted to, so he could self-finance. Uh, John Cox, who is uh, the San Diego area businessman who ran against Newsom in 2018, he's written a couple of checks to him, uh, his own campaign, seven-figure checks, but he can't keep doing that. He doesn't have that kind of money. Uh, so these Republicans are all going to be kind of cash-strapped, I think, uh, as we uh, get closer to September 14th. So this does become more of an issue of name recognition. And here's Larry Elder, who has, I think, a million followers on Twitter. Um, he has a following because he was doing talk radio in Southern California for some time. Um, and as a talk radio guy, uh, that means that he's been, you know, saying a lot of things out loud that, out loud that a lot of candidates would kind of, you know, use for bubble thought. Now, if you're running head to head against Newsom, this gets back to my original point about how this is an unusual ballot. This would be hugely problematic because you get to see a million and one ads cut against Elder saying he said this and he said that and so forth. What talk radio people do. But because Jonathan Ali, he is running against a field of other Republicans and other candidates, he could finish first. Now, to me, this is a fascinating question. Lee's is going to be my next California in your mind column as well. What if he actually won? How would he govern? Because you figure it this way, he could finish first. Uh, the poll you mentioned, Jonathan, I think he had 16% of the uh, of the support. So this is uh, the next highest person had like six. But let's say that he wins. He gets the most votes on the candidates question. But it's only like 25% of the vote. And it's a special election, so it's a small turnout. That doesn't speak to a mandate. He then, gentlemen, has to go to Sacramento, uh, where the legislature has super majorities in both chambers. Number one, they will not uh, confirm any of his appointees. He'll have temporary cabinet secretaries. Anything he proposes will be dead on arrival with the legislature. And 
come budget time, they could override his veto. So uh, I think what you'd be looking at with Republican governor would be kind of a version of what Barack Obama famously said when the Senate went Republican after 2014. What did he say? I still have a pen. I still have a phone. That's what the governor of California would be. If I were Larry Elder and I won that recall election or any Republican who won this, I would be convening anyone and everyone who worked for Pete Wilson or George Dupachian, or even Arnold Schwarzenegger, or even Ronald Reagan, I'd try to find everyone who worked in the legal affairs office, because I think you're going to be reduced to one thing, Lee, which is just doing executive orders and trying to do things by executive fiat, because you do not have a legislative path. Yeah, uh, Schwarzenegger faced some of those same issues, uh, as I recall. Um, he did workers' comp that way. I think he just did executive order undo workers' compensation uh, changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so I've been, yeah. So um, I speak with Elder um, a fair amount on a fairly regular basis. He's asked me to help advise him on economic issues, particularly housing issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting guy. Uh, very intelligent. Um, former lawyer. He is uh, in a unique position because he is a black conservative. He's very logical in terms of what he thinks about. He certainly thinks the state is on the wrong track. Uh, It's hard to find a logical disagreement with the points he makes. Um, So I think uh, think his heart is certainly in the right place. I think a lot of his economic instincts are, uh, are accurate. There is obviously a challenge for any Republican to be an effective an effective consensus maker within the state, given the circumstances of a recall election and given the composition of the state legislature. So, uh, yeah. So I agree, Bill. I think there would be a lot of executive orders that would be uh, that would be going on on um, this this coming Wednesday, August 4th. Uh, three of the recall candidates will participate in a debate um, at my old stomping grounds in Nixon Library. Uh, John Cox. Uh, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer and former U.S. Representative Doug Ose. Gavin Newsom is not participating. Um, Caitlyn Jenner uh, is apparently has a prior engagement and Larry Elder will also not be participating. Uh, so do you think these debates will have any impact? And um, if you were if you were advising each candidate, um, how would you how would you get your uh, how, how would you try to spark attention and um, make voters think that you are the most uh, reliable candidate to defeat uh, Gavin Newsom. Well, for, first, Jonathan, I think I owe you an apology. I wrote a piece of the Washington Post the other day, and I kind of made a snarky comment about why are they holding this debate at the Nixon Library? Because if you know the political history of Richard Milhouse Nixon, uh, prior to Watergate, the low point of his political career was what? running for governor in 1962 in California, where he famously says you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. So I'm not sure I'd be going here to kind of highlight uh, Republican campaigns in California. But uh, uh, but that said, um, this what's going to be interesting. Um, there was one recall debate back in 2003. It was Schwarzenegger and um, Cruz Bustamante, the Democrat in the race, and uh, three others, most famously, Ariana Huffington. And um, we don't remember much of that debate other than Schwarzenegger um, being attacked by Ariana and Schwarzenegger saying that I have a role for you in the next Terminator movie. And what he was referring to was picking her up and dunking her head in a toilet, which was not he didn't say that, but it's kind of the insinuation. That's what politics in California come to, gentlemen. Um, But what was notable about that debate in 2003, it was carried nationally. It was carried internationally because there was one Arnold Schwarzenegger on the stage. We all want to see, geez, how would Arnold handle himself? So question number one is. Do the media cover this? Do actually local TV stations in Los Angeles 
and San Francisco, Sacramento, Fresno, Inland Empire to the actually show the same live. I think it's 630 in the evening, by the way, uh, 90 minutes. So question number one, do they show it? But question number two, and this is what really has my attention here. Um, these candidates have to understand that, yes, they're all competing against each other for votes. But if you don't recall the governor on the first part of the ballot, it doesn't matter how many votes you get on the second part. It's academic. It's, you know, question number two is only relevant and question number one passes. So they're all going to have to make a decision on how much time do I spend attacking my opponents versus how much time I attack the governor. And here we're into a very time-honored tradition of California Republicans, the so-called circular firing squad, where given the chance, Republicans invariably get into purity tests with each other and, you know, kind of question who's the real Republican, the rhino if you will. So I think 90 minutes spent arguing purity, who's really a Republican, who's not, uh, would be a tragic waste of the time. They have to make the argument against Newsom, plain and simple. And here, Lee, I'm kind of interested in how you sell this to Californians. There is obviously an economic component to talk about here. Uh, if it were me, I'd be going after affordability. I'd be going after housing. This governor, I think, promised to build, correct me if I'm wrong, Lee, I think a million new homes in California. Uh, I think maybe he's one-tenth of the way to that. Uh, so you could do economics. You could do crime, as we've uh, talked about on this. We can do government management, the fact that the state cannot print unemployment checks. You can make it personal with French laundry. All kinds of ways you can go as your candidate. Um, but they're all going to have to decide what I think really has teeth here. What, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, uh, yeah, Bill, I agree with that. The um, Strategically, for Oaths and Cox and Faulkner, is that um, they all win if they just stick to attacking Newsom and making the case that change is needed. Because as you pointed out, this is sequential. First, you need to recall the governor. Um, so it would be um, really unwise for them to, to disagree with each other. There's plenty of room, <laughs> sadly, there's plenty of room to, to, to attack Newsom on. And there's plenty of space for them to agree with each other, ranging from housing costs, which John Cox, a housing developer, emphasized when he ran against Newsom in 2018, um, and which Faulkner, um, whom I've spoken to in terms of economic advice, uh, has also emphasized, and which Ose has also emphasized. So there's housing, there's crime, there's the fact that California is the worst state in terms of recovering from COVID. Uh, you know, so I, I, was, uh, I was looking at some data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics at the state level on the California economy, and um, it's, it's abysmal. So U.S. unemployment rate is now down to 5.9%. California is the highest, I believe, at 7.7%. Right. Since February, uh, since February, California job growth has all, has almost been nil. Mm -hmm. There was uh, there was a recovery in December, January, but since February, there's been almost no job growth. Seven point seven unemployment continues. The uh, it, the employment development department, which was responsible for administering and sending out unemployment checks, still hasn't figured out how to do that. Um, at a, uh, at a competent level. There's just all sorts of things that people can point to um, with Newsom. So, uh, you know, I'm not gonna speak about collusion or that these three guys are gonna form a little cartel here, but um, each, one of, each one of their candidacies is substantially enhanced 
by the fact that all they would do is speak about Newsom. And when the moderator asked them about what they think about the other fellow, they continue to speak against Newsom. They don't take shots against any, they don't take shots against each other. Um, And and Bill, I also, I agree with you that, um, that this, yeah, this is not going to get much coverage. If Elder was on the stage, obviously it would get more. And if Caitlyn Jenner was on the stage, it would get more. But with, um, you know, Cox, Cox lost in 18. Um, Faulkner is not particularly well-known within the state, nor is O's. Um, so those are the challenges that, that they're facing. So they, they just need to keep to keep their sights on Newsom the entire time. Yeah. Now, in fairness to these gentlemen, um, it's worth pointing out that it's not easy to run as a Republican in California, not just based on the voter registration numbers, but also the way the media treats you. good example of this is our uh, uh, friend and colleague, Lon He Chen, who's on a leave of absence from Hoover now. He's running for state controller here in California, which is the chief budget officer, the CFO of the state, if you will. So Lon He announces his candidacy and he sits down with reporters. And what do they ask him out of the shoot? They ask him where he is on abortion. They ask him if you voted for Donald Trump. Now, he's... These have nothing to do with being this to be the state controller of California, but it's just the litmus test, the hoops that reporters want you to jump through. But but again, Lee, what I'm curious about is this. If you go back to the last recall, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a lot of things going for him, obviously name recognition of money and running a 60 day campaign. Easy. But also his opponent. Governor Davis, the subject of the recall, handed him some issues. There were rolling blackouts. Um, there was the tripling of the vehicle license fee. There was workers' compensation. Uh, closer to the recall, Davis uh, reversed policy. He previously vetoed a bill to give a driver's license to illegal immigrants. He then changed his mind and he signed it, and he kind of did it the worst possible way. He did it on a Friday night in Los Angeles, invited only Latino uh, media, which just was kind of, you know, pandering of the worst sort. So Arnold just kind of had ready-made talking points. So again, I'm curious, Lee, is when these fellows get up on the stage, what exactly they're going to choose in the topics now? I assume they've been spending money on some polling. I assume they think they have their finger on the pulse. So again, when they talk and debate on Wednesday night, I want to see what actually they put forward in their argument. Yeah. Faulkner has, Faulkner has uh, come out with a tax plan. So I think he, I think he will talk about that. And I think he will connect with the fact that California has the 42nd highest overall tax burden within the country, mm-hmm. that it has, uh, that it's, I believe, 47th in terms of corporate taxation, that this means jobs are being lost. This means companies are moving out, all of which, all of which is true. Um, high income, high net worth individuals are declaring residency in other states and not paying taxes uh, in California. That is also true. So I expect he's going to be going in that direction. Um, Cox ran in 2018 on housing, um, which again, median price home in California is about $800,000. Along coastal California, within 20 miles of the Pacific Ocean, you've got a median priced home, uh, an average of over $1 million, is $1.6 million in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. That requires about $200,000 of household uh, income per year after taxes to afford on a conventional mortgage. Uh, I suspect Cox will be going um, will be going after that. Um, Osa, uh, Osa, I've not spoken with, um, so I don't know what he's going to be aiming at. Um, but you know, in terms of the media, uh, yeah, I, I mean, a Republican can't get um, they can't get coverage by the media in this state, mm-hmm. and um, 
if you, you know, you mentioned Schwarzenegger and his ability to engage in charm. And I mean, he's, he's an actor. Um, and, uh, and that was a brilliant one-liner he gave. Um, and Ronald Reagan was an actor and he gave a brilliant one-liner when he told um, Walter Mondale, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take my candidates youth and inexperience uh, to my advantage. Um, and he was incredibly disarming, incredibly charming. Um, I don't know, Bill, um, Cox, Faulkner, Ose, um, are these guys sufficiently charming to, to, uh, to woo the media? Um, they're not Schwarzenegger and they're not Reagan. Right. So Lee, if I were, if I were a lawyer and doing a closing argument and these candidates, here's how I would do it. I would say, number one, folks, get out your laptops, click on Zillow and find a city in California and put in $500,000 as the max for your home. And let's see what you get. So number one, I'd raise the question of affordable housing. Number two, Lee, I would then say, look for a house that has a garage in it. Why? Because if you don't park your car in a garage, you put it on the street, it's going to get broken into, which then leads into question number three, look at the schools near your house and let's see how they did in COVID. Were they open or not? Are they going to reopen in September? And then finally, if there are any parks near your house, are there homeless people living in them or not? So that's, that's how I think I'd kind of wrap up California in a nutshell if I were a candidate right now, just make it a real strong quality of life issue. Can you find a place to live? Can you find a place that is safe? Can you find a place that has a school where your kids want to get educated? Then finally, is it going to be pristine or is it just going to be overrun with homelessness and just kind of a rundown condition that makes you think this is not California? Yeah, great points. Great points. The only thing I would add to that is, hey, are you able to water your lawn uh, <laughs> this September? And uh, if you walk in your local CBS, do you feel safe or do you feel like somebody might come in and walk out after pilfering the entire store since any since any shoplifting below $950 is a misdemeanor <clears throat> and won't be stopped by store personnel and won't be prosecuted by, uh, by the district attorney. So, Bill, that's a great list. You know, you know, why this podcast is not sponsored by Chambers of Commerce from other states is a mystery to me, but... <laughs> One of the base co-moderators is uh, Hugh Hewitt, and he has repeatedly um, invited uh, California Governor Newsom to come to the Nixon Library and state his case of why um, he shouldn't be recalled. Um, is there any advantage in Gavin Newsom participating in these debates? In a word, no, and two words, God, no. Um, Davis <laughs> did not debate did not debate in 2003, um, but Newsom would not want to do this for two reasons. Number one, um, legitimacy here. It's just if he shows up on the same stage as these guys, he's trying to all times, Jonathan Lee, say this is not a legitimate democratic process. It's it's a Republican, conservative, you know, mouth-breathing, MAGA, Trump group of people trying to oust him out of office. This is not honest democracy. So him showing up for this debate is legitimizing. And so he's not going to do it for that reason. But secondly, he's smart enough to know that if he shows up on that stage, he is now, as Lee mentioned, he's the rallying point. He's the unifying point. So they can spend all night just taking shots at him rather than take shots at each other. So no, if I were him, I would just stay as far away from this as I could, which I think he will. Yeah. Yeah. Agree entirely. The problem with Gavin Newsom is that is completely in his best interest uh, to steer clear of this right. because he has not been an effective governor. Uh, and I would say uh, worse than that, he has um, the state's quality of life independent of COVID has deteriorated under his watch. Crime is up, housing prices are up, and his whole candidacy was about building, I believe, 3.5 million or 4.5 million units during his right. governorship. Um, right. In the first year of his governorship, 
housing starts were 78% below what he had promised, 78%. I don't think he can point to any accomplishment. Uh, so the problem with Gavin Newsom is the reason why that it's, it's uh, apart from Bill's excellent point about legitimacy, is the reason why he can't be up there because he will lose. Yeah, there's one other practical reason. Um, this is a shout out to our friend uh, Hugh uh, Hugh Hewitt. Uh, I've done his radio show. Um, he was a, been a Hoover Media fellow. He will ask tough questions. He was going to ask questions Gavin Newsom won't like. Um, if he wants to do interviews with reporters, there are a lot of reporters around California who we could have a much friendlier conversation with. Some, I dare say, would engage in softball practice with him. But he was not that guy. So <laughs> if Newsom's smart, he won't go anywhere near this. The national moratorium on evictions is set to end tomorrow, and California's deadline doesn't come till I believe, October. Uh, the state has $2.6 billion worth of reserves to financially support this policy. Uh, but, Lee, is, this, is such a policy sustainable? No, no, no it's, it's not sustainable. Um, and the challenge is uh, the following. On the one hand, if government is engineering a shutdown of economic activity, then it's coming upon them to support the people that that shutdown is hurting. On the other hand, it's not just renters who are hurting. It's, it's, it's landlords and people whose business income depends on receiving, depends on receiving that rental income. And those people, okay, so if you're a renter, you just don't pay, okay? We're good to go. If you're a landlord, um, you need to receive some income. And those folks aren't receiving that income. Um, there's a variety of state bottlenecks and staff who's associated with that. So it's not just the renters that are hurting, it's those who own those rental units that are getting paid. But the idea that we can continue this without, uh, without a, an end date is just silly economics. But I suspect, you know, with California, it doesn't come up until October, but it would be most likely in Newsom's interest to make to make promises about what he will do on that front in order to get uh, in order to avoid the recall. Yeah. And uh, Lee raises a good point. Uh, the moratorium in California expires on September 30th. That's 16 days after the recall election. So uh, it's a good question to ask the candidates in the uh, debate on August the 4th, next Wednesday. It's also a very good question to ask the governor. What are you going to do come September the 30th? I think, by the way, Speaker Pelosi was uh, saying today that she believes the whole thing should be extended. So there's more pressure for him to face. Um Another another policy issue, um, the Sacramento, Sacramento Bee reported yesterday that California dairy farmers are really feeling uh, the squeeze because of the ongoing drought. Their, their costs are rising and the prices of their products have remained relatively stagnant. Um, if you were advising the recall candidates, um, how would you address the water dilemma in California? Um, is, is it the case that more dams just need to be built? Uh, Lee, you want to start with that one as well? I mean, California has had a water problem for ever. <laughs> and it just gets worse every year because we haven't had major water infrastructure really since the 1970s. So we think about adding 15 million people to the state since then, and the quality of dams and levees continues to deteriorate. Um, you know, folks might remember in 2018, um, we had a major dam failure at Oroville. Um, and I noted before that that warning signs, uh, I mean, warning reports were issued long before that dam failed, which cost 1.1 billion to fix, probably could have been retrofitted for $40 million. Um, and the failure of that dam endangered nearly 200,000 people. 
So if we think more broadly about, and this goes back to Newsom, um, what's the primary what's the primary job of government is to protect, um, is to invest in those areas that people need from government, such as water infrastructure, and is to protect them. And California's done uh, an awful job at both protecting uh, in terms of having a reliable water source and even just maintaining the, uh, the existing facilities. Um, so the Society of Civil Engineers gives us a grade of something like a D for our water infrastructure, for dams and our levees. Um, uh, within um, really a desert climate, um, desal is an obvious solution. Um, California Environmental Quality Act um, makes this sort of a nightmare to try to get through. And the uh, what's what's really ironic is that the desal process now is so much more environmentally friendly than it was even just even just 15 years ago. Israel now basically runs on desal. Um, so that's something we should be doing more of. And we certainly should be collecting more of the rainwater that, uh, that, that when, when rain does fall. Um, ironically, when that Oroville dam, <laughs> that Oroville dam failed, when we had particularly heavy rainfall. Um, so, uh, Jonathan, to get back to the question about uh, dairy farmers and farmers in general, um, our ag industry is tossed around topsy-turvy every time we have a drought. Um, do uh, yeah, uh, uh, farmers have to have to think about? Do I plow up my my uh, my very valuable almond uh, almond trees and plant something more drought tolerant? Um, they really don't know what to do because they don't know what water policy is going to be like. Uh, we really need a much steadier ship here, and there's got to be a lot more investment in water and the capture of rainfall. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a problem for the last four decades. And, um, and this is really what's wrong with California. Just the, pr yeah. the priorities that should be getting done are just so far down the list um, that it's, al it's almost comical. If you wanted to uh, do a fun data dive, I'd say do it on a rainy day, but we don't have rainy days in California anymore. Um, but go on the internet and go into some dark recesses of the internet and start looking at people with solutions for how to fix California's water shortages. You'll find everything from people who want to tow uh, icebergs up from uh, Antarctica. Uh, William Shatner, uh, aka Captain Kirk from Star Trek, I think he uh, envisioned building a pipeline from Seattle to uh, California. Uh, there are people who think that you can actually collect fog and turn it into water. Uh, there are engineers who convince that you can actually uh, program the clouds to rain. You can actually make it rain without doing a native dance. Uh, but I think it comes down to at least three things here. Number one is, um, is uh, just the fact that it rains in California, water comes downstream, it goes out to the ocean, and we do a poor job of collecting that water. It goes out to sea and we don't get it back. So that's issue number one. It gets very complicated because it gets into environmental measures and so forth. Uh, question number two is how much Californians themselves are using, which gets into a huge fight between North and South because more people South and North, they use more water. But then issue number three gets into agriculture and what are we growing in California? For example, alfalfa. Um, I'm not sure what alfalfa is used for, excuse me for my agricultural ignorance, but alfalfa is a particularly thirsty crop. So perhaps if California is going to be making, have to make uh, do with less water in the near future, uh, the ag industry is going to have to perhaps reshuffle what it grows in California. So there you go. Uh, all I know is that this has been debated, as Lee mentioned. Um, look, Pat Brown came up with the water policy, uh, building canals in a water system in the 1960s. Every California governor since then has talked about reliable water. Every California governor since then has failed in this one way or another. So it is it is a proverbial can that gets kicked down the road in the Golden State. Well, alfalfa is primarily livestock feed. 
Thank you. Thank it's you. one of the uh, it's one it has one of the lowest market prices of all crops, and we ship an awful lot of our alfalfa to China, which I believe is for their uh, their pig population. So what that effectively means is that we export water to China. Okay. Gentlemen, given all that we've talked about today, um, the wildfires, the soaring public debt, rising crime rates, a severe drought that's squeezing um, out, um, out farmers, um, in addition to that, policies that have led to the exodus of uh, thousands of middle-class uh, citizens of California uh, from the state, uh, Given all, of, given all of these events and all of these policies, do you think that California is ripe for a future of populist politics? People are still going to want to come to California and work here and live here. Why? Uh, it is still a bright, imaginative society. It is still a very creative society. It is futuristic when you look at issues like technology, uh, entertainment, agriculture. Uh, look, having spent a month in South Carolina, I can tell you it's much preferable to uh, live in Palo Alto in 75 degree weather than uh, Charleston, South Carolina in 95 degrees and heat humidity. So there are advantages to it, but I think the disadvantage is going to be uh, both the combination of what Lee and I have been talking about in terms of just sheer affordability, the Zillow question, if you will, but then the larger quality of life question. And, you know, California has had this you know, magical role in the American psyche for really going back to post-World War II as a destination state. But then when you think about, think about just pop culture for a second, if you are a idiot like me and you grew up on television in the 60s and the 70s, and you watch shows like My Three Sons, where Steve Douglas, the family patriarch, is an engineer in Southern California, an aerospace engineer in Southern California, the Brady Bunch, the Partridge family. These are all happy, sunny families in California. You watch that not living in California and think California is kind of a magical place to me. I have I have four grand nephews right now. They all want to come to California. In part, they want to see me, but just they think California is a cool place to be for some reason. So uh, I think there will always be a demand here, but the question is going to be who's leaving the state. Uh, we talk about the wealthy people leaving California. Well, I think you can supplant wealth with new wealth in California. It's really going to be the middle class, I think, that's going to move Lee, people who just can't afford to live here. And they're going to go to the likes of Utah or Texas and how California is going to have a vibrant middle class and not this you know, ongoing barbell economy of ours, which is you know, weighted heavily at the, at the uh, rich and poor extremes and thin in the middle, how California you know, rebuilds its middle class. Yeah. The, I mean, Bill, you hit the nail on the head with that because California has become um, certainly for, you know, for, for young people just starting out or for people moving to the state, um, it's unaffordable, you know, certainly in the locations with the highest paying jobs, which would be Bay Area, Silicon Valley, L.A., San Diego, Orange County. Um, that's where all the top paying jobs are. And, you know, as, as Bill mentioned, you know, you Google a million dollars in any of those locations. Um, maybe a little bit in Orange County, inland, you can find something that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be shocked at. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're essentially saying, you know what, if you, if you, if you want to have a decent life in coastal California, then you need a household income of a minimum of $150,000 per year. Right. There's just not a lot of, 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 there's just not a lot of that. So yeah, it's really become a place for, uh, elites, um, uh, economic elites and, uh, and who intersect with uh, cultural and social elitism. Um, the ideas of the, uh, you know, when Bill brought up, yeah, as I remember as a kid watching the Brady Bunch, 
and uh, and and um, I was going to say Leap to Beaver, but I think they were in Illinois, <laughs> which is another state that's lost uh, this lost his dream. Um, but yeah, those days those days are gone. The idea of a, the idea of middle income people really succeeding in California. That's not possible unless, you know, unless you're a working professional somewhere in the San Joaquin Valley, then you can afford housing, but not so much in coastal California. Those days are gone. Right. But then if you live in the Valley, Lee, then here's the question. You are at odds. You're at war with the government in Sacramento because you feel that they don't share your values. And that's part of what we're seeing in this recall election and why it is as close as it is, I think, because we have this divided California. There is blue and coastal, which will be loyal to Gavin Newsom. But then there's inland, which is red and it is hot and it is dusty and it's angry right now. And it's angry not just at the natural conditions, but it's angry because it's convinced the government Sacramento just cares not for it. And this is a governor who did make a point of going to the Central Valley very early in his administration, but talk to our colleague Victor Davis Hansen about this. I did a call with him the other day for uh, Hoover donors, and Victor said that, look, you know, five miles from him, 10 miles, I think, from his farm uh, just outside of Fresno, there is uh, what passes for high-speed rail construction, <laughs> and, it's, and it's, you know, it's, you know, strewn with graffiti, and it's never going to get built, and you look at that, and you just think that, you know, what is our government thinking? So um, in addition to, I think, improving the middle class in California, you're going to have to come up with a new government approach, Lee, that I think does convince our 40 million people here that we're all in this together. Yeah. And that's, that's a real problem because um, you look at Mark Zuckerberg living in San Francisco and uh, private schools, security staff, housing affordability, who, who even thinks about that and Mark Zuckerberg's net worth. So if you, you so California is the bluest state in the country. Um, And when you look at you know, what the Democratic Party has in common at one extreme is Mark Zuckerberg and another extreme it might be an immigrant laborer whose household income is thirty five or forty thousand dollars per year, who is not a Republican just because they couldn't stand President Trump. Mm-hmm. What does that migrant laborer and Mark Zuckerberg have in common besides being being part of the same political party? Absolutely nothing. They have absolutely nothing in common. So, yeah, there's got to be a shared vision of what the state means. Um, and the state has a remarkable gifts and amenities that everybody has recognized for decades. It doesn't take an awful lot to reduce housing prices, to get better schools, um, but it requires better governance and requires politicians who can make difficult decisions and who can lead and who don't necessarily listen more closely to well-vested, um, well-stocked, well-moneyed special interests. Um, right. But you know that's the big that's the big issue. Voters have got to voters have got to uh, elect a really a very different class of politician than they have been for the last few decades. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you Lee. Thanks, Bill. Been- Always a lot of fun. Okay, take care, guys. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverINST. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at BillWhalenCA. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening.
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.